This week on a lively experiment, the candidates make their final push with the elections just a few days away. And then it will be the voters' turn to speak. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr. For over 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program in Rhode Island PBS. This week, the reporters who have been right in the thick of the campaigns from the start. Joining us on the panel, Providence Journal State House reporter Patrick Anderson, Ian Donis, political reporter for the Public's Radio, and WPRI Target 12 investigative reporter Steph Machado. Welcome to a lively experiment. I'm Jim Hummel. The candidates in the governor's race made their last public appearance before a statewide television audience on Thursday with Ashley Kalis on the defensive this week about crude text messages she sent a contractor working on her home several years ago. Kalis tried to put the focus back on Dan McKee, questioning what he's really done for Rhode Islanders over the past 18 months. Um, Patrick, you and Ian have gotten a front row view for this. We'll talk about your debate in a second. Um, here we are going into the home stretch, and I wonder, you know, they're trying to talk to undecided voters. I wonder at this point how many are left, whether days before the election, whether people have made their minds up. Yeah, it's hard to know, and I think McKee certainly came into this race with a lot of advantages as far as incumbency, the economy, the waning to a large degree of the pandemic, but there have been questions about how both McKee and Kalis uh, respond to questions. McKee can be very thin-skinned at times. That was evident in a Boston Globe podcast this week. He's been thin-skinned with me when I've asked him about his former chief of staff, Tony Silva, and the ILO group. Kalis uh, does acknowledge having said some very salty things in text messages as part of a business dispute in her time as Illinois. And, you know, how this uh, lands on voters is hard to say. Uh, probably it turns off some who see it as politics as usual. And then you have, uh, you know, if you really want change and you think Rodan's on the wrong track, you're probably going to support Kalis. If you think things are going all right and you like Democrats, you're a McKee supporter. Did you hear anything substantially different yesterday than the, you know, you and Ian hosted the debate uh, for both CD2 and the governor's race. They're the same talking points, and I know you have to get those across. Was there any new nuance yesterday that you heard? or No, not on the issues and not on policy or anything like that. It was, it was very heavy on the same talking points. A lot of the questions were similar to what's been uh, asked over the last month or so. I think the main th thing that was different in yesterday's debate, I thought McKee was a little more comfortable and a little more aggressive. He's been flat-footed in some of the debates and hasn't looked entirely prepared or comfortable. I think she caught him off guard with her aggressiveness towards the start of the campaign. And I think he really got prepared and, and had some more um, front-footed ideas on his mind uh, yesterday than the previous debates. But I think because we're going over ground that we've, we've largely gone over before, I don't think it changed that much. I think a lot of the vote is literally baked in. They've been early voting al already. And I think a lot of people have probably made up their minds by this point. Um, but it, it at least, I think, maybe gave people who were questioning some of the recent performances by the governor maybe some reassurance that he's not cratering or anything.
Yeah, I mean, it's been about a month since the last poll in the race, so it's hard to know how many undecided voters there still are and how many of the undecideds from that October poll are still deciding who to vote for now. It, as Ian mentioned, there's been some headlines this week about vulgar language from uh, Ms. Kalis. Um, the governor did a very newsworthy podcast with The Globe where he seemed to, again, the, the questions really got under his skin about um, the FBI investigations, the ILO contract, <clears throat> and the RICAST scores. And so whether there are undecided voters that might say, I'm going to pick one of the third-party candidates. There's still three other candidates on the ballot. Mm. People might be going for them. They don't have a chance of winning. But how that might affect the final results in the race, we'll have to see. So the get-out-the-vote is important, too. And I think the governor... We'll talk about the CD2 race in a second. We were talking off-camera on this. The governor has run, certainly, statewide races for lieutenant governor, and he has the the large union backing, not all of them. But what, what role does that play as opposed to an outsider, you know... The, we talk about Ashley Kalis being an outsider. It really is crucial during an election in Rhode Island when you're trying to get people to the polls. Yeah, well, I, to your question, I mean, I think the Democratic infrastructure for getting out the vote is much more developed than for Republicans. We obviously haven't had a Republican win the governor's race here since back in 2006 when Don Carcheri won his uh, re-election run. So I think that does make it more challenging for a Republican. Now, it helps that Kalis has a lot of money. She's put close to $5 million into her campaign and, you know, money can help to support the get out the vote effort. But the uh, McKee does have a lot of union support and there's just a lot more apparatus on the Democratic side to support day of election efforts and mail ballots. I heard a little bit of concern about the turnout in Providence, which is obviously a Democratic stronghold. They don't have a mayoral race because Brett Smiley is unopposed. If you look at the early vote numbers, Providence is coming in, you know, third behind Warwick and Cranston right now. Um, and so will Democrats be able to turn out the vote in Providence, which is very important for Democrats, you know, hopes for the election. If it's a close race. If it's a close race, exactly. Now, I will say, you know, a lot of people in Providence don't have cars. So the fact that there's they're low on early voting right now. It's possible people are just waiting until they can go to their polling place that's in their neighborhood rather than driving downtown. But So we'll have to see. And there's also the interplay with the CD2 race. And I think that also plays a little bit into Warwick and Cranston mm -hmm. and some of the early voting numbers being higher in, in cities and towns that are in the 2nd Congressional District. And it'll be interesting to see what, how the CD2 race plays with the governor's race, whether the infrastructure and, and whether the infrastructure, the ground game that the Democrats have can help Seth Magaziner and, and whether that's an advantage that might show up and, and give him a shot, even though he, he's, uh, I mean, he has a shot, definitely, but, you know, whether that can, can bring this gap, back, yeah. right, bring this back to where we think you know, Fung has had a lead over most of the uh, the campaign. You know, I thought the governor missed an opportunity uh, as I was watching it yesterday. Ashley Kalis talked about families struggling, and I remember struggling and all that. She's put almost $4 million of her own money in. So, it's you know, it's the old what does the gallon of milk cost. They talked about that in the CD2 race. But I thought the governor at some point may have wanted to say, well, Ms. Kalis, you're not really, you know, you talk about these struggles that you're going through, but you're, you know, a multimillionaire now. 
That's a fair point. I mean, I think McKee's campaign has had some fairly effective ads. The one pointing to how Kalos is, you know, not from Rhode Island, using some, you know, Rhode Island accents. I mean, that is probably a pretty effective ad. And you're right, Kalos is not going to be in a food stamp line anytime soon. You know, she has responded by pointing to the half-empty glass argument about the downside of Rhode Island. So, you know, and there's there's fair criticism to be made of a lot of things. So the voters will have their say on that. The governor made a little news last night, and you actually broke the news overnight. All of the, the, the sound and fury about the RICAST scores, and it really looked like it was a big nothing burger at the end of the day, right? Well, they did ultimately release the RICAST scores this morning. Um, they show that students did uh, better in math than last year, worse in English, although both subjects' proficiency is, de is still down from pre-pandemic. And this became this sort of weeks-long controversy during the campaign because Ride said the scores weren't going to come out until after the election, and we sort of received a varying list of explanations, and the explanations changed throughout the month of October, um, allowing it to turn into a political attack for Ashley Kalis, who accused Governor McKee of holding the scores hostage, is her words, until after the election. He mentioned at the debate, that the scores were ready and that they were imminently going to be released and they were released this morning. Which is great. I think we should always have RICAS scores and possibly other really important data <laughs> released in a debate every year. <laughs> I'd like to continue. You always love Valicenti. Let's make some news here, right? He wanted yeah. to break news. Uh, look, it's no it's no secret. They they told the education reporters, and this happens all the time, a political releases, whatever, they're embargoed. So you knew they were coming, but I'm sure as you were watching that debate, you're hearing the governor and you're thinking it's going to be coming pretty soon. Well, and he mentioned in the debate that math was up and English was down. What he didn't mention is up from what, right? So they were up from last year. Uh, math up from last year, but not from pre-pandemic. It's pre -pandemic. like twenty-seven percent proficiency. So we're still talking about about just we talk about up and down. About a quarter of Rhode Island public school students are doing math at grade level, and less than a third of students in grades three through eight are reading and writing at grade level. That's where we're at. Did the governor box himself in by saying, look, we know he could have called and probably did at some point the commissioner and say, look, we really need to get these things out? Or did he box himself in saying there's a wall between us and the office and I don't really want to push them in whatever? I mean, he it really seems like he it, once he locked into that position, he couldn't really make that phone call to say, let's get it going. Yeah, well, it works both ways. Either it's impossible for if it's impossible for them to release the scores in a timely manner, then you have to question his leadership in, in getting ride to a functional state, um, or if it's just that he is delaying it after the election, then he's interfering politically. So there was, a, yeah, at one point it did become something where he couldn't quite win, and you wonder, because no one really understood exactly why, you know, what was being done to the scores uh, that, that they couldn't be released. It wasn't like they were building a bridge or something. Where right. it takes well, the principal said that they'd gotten they'd gotten them right. Yeah, and like you know, and and you know, Ride gets a raw data file that they then have to verify. They got to make sure the kids were included in the right school because kids move around a lot. So there obviously is some data crunching that has to happen. But whether or not you need two months to do that work, I think, was in question. And the, the the argument they finally landed on, there were so many different reasons that were given as to why the scores couldn't come out until mid-November, but they ultimately landed on this argument that, well, it took 60 days last year from date of receipt to release, so it'll take 60 days this year. Well, lo and behold, they managed to get the scores out in 50 days. So they were able to do it faster amid pressure to get the scores out before the election. And again, we're taping this Friday morning. I have asked 
whether they got a new data and how they managed to get the scores out earlier they earlier than the timeline. They, they got one guy they and he insisted, like called in sick a couple of days, right? So that pushed us back. Right. They insisted that this was going to take till mid-November, so we are still waiting to hear back on why they were able to suddenly get them out before the election. All right, let's talk about CD2. That's the other big race. Uh, last debate yesterday at 4 o'clock between Fung and Magaziner. Same talking points. You just wonder the whole the Democrats are hoping that they come home, as we like to say. But Alan Fung is strong in CD2. Yeah, I mean, this the outcome of this will be really fascinating. I mean, I think polls have indicated a slight edge for Fung. Magaziner has tweaked his message in the last two weeks, not surprisingly, to focus more on the economy. It seemed odd for a long time with every poll showing cost of living as being top of mind for most voters that he was focused on some other issues. But now he's making kind of a populist argument about the huge profits being made by oil companies. That's his counterpart argument to Fung's focus on the cost of living and it'll be it'll be fascinating. You guys did that debate just once and I was listening to this yesterday. Gene Valicenti and you guys were trying to ask yes no questions and they and, and I know politicians do this and they pivot. I wanted to slap them through the TV. They would ask them a direct question and Alan would say or Seth Magaziner would say and this is why and that's half the battle in those things is trying to keep them focused, right? Because you'll say, hey, what's the temperature today? And you'll say, well, the moon was full last week, right? Yeah, open-ended open questions can, can be really problematic because then they just, it gives them entree to go uh, on to their closing argument for every single question. Um, yeah, it, it, they, have, they have gotten their talking points at this point so well-honed that they can they can turn around uh, a a simple question about what time of day it is and launch into, into their spiel. So yeah, I, I don't think like the governor's debate yesterday. I think in CD two there wasn't a huge amount of new ground covered. It was it was very similar. I thought Magaziner was again a little more aggressive than he has been in the past, um, which may reflect uh, a little bit that he's been trailing in the polls or just he's finding his feet uh, even more. Um, but I thought he was definitely on the attack and had a decent debate. Whether that will change things at all at this point, I don't, I don't know. Um, but he's at least given it a, a good go. Yeah, I mean, I think the question I have is, is, you mentioned, will the Democrats come home? How many voters really vote strategically, right? We're talking about Democrats or left-leaning independents who like Alan Fung, like him better than Seth Magaziner, will they make that strategic choice of, okay, I don't want Republicans to take control of the House, so I'll vote for Seth Magaziner instead of the guy I like the best? That is sort of the question that still remains because, again, it's been a month or so since we've had the public polling in the race. Number of Democrats were going for Alan Fung. Now, Magaziner's campaign says the race is tightening. He thinks he is bringing Democrats back into his camp as they sort of tune into the race and wake up to the idea that, you know, Republicans are in a position to take over the House, Republicans who have more, who have views to the right of Alan Fung. Doesn't it come down to, though, if he can take Cranston and Warwick, that sets him up pretty well, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And, uh, he, you know, Fung has been relentlessly on message, as Patrick said. Uh, and, you know, he, despite Magaziner's attempts to associate him with the Republican faction in Congress, uh, you know, his persona as the former mayor combined with inflation has put him where he is in this race. Uh, you know, there was one poll that showed about 25 percent of Democrats supporting Fung. And, you know, if he is going to 
if Magaziner is going to have a, sh a good shot at winning, he's got to have pulled back a number of those voters. If, if you're tuning in for the first time yesterday, though, we've watched these things, and we could, as they, the reporters used to say when they were covering presidential elections, they could give each other speech, and the candidate could probably give each other speech. If you're tuning in for the first time and you're watching that dodging and weaving and pivoting, does that irk you as a, I mean, I know it's a crystal ball question, but if, if I'm just tuning in, I'm like, these guys aren't answering the question. Well, less than probably it, it irks us, I, I would think. <laughs> That's true. I, the irk factor is pretty high. Um, yeah, I, I think that I, they, they've obviously tested this stuff. This is, this is stuff that comes down from the national level, especially these campaigns are being run to some extent on, on a national level. So these are not just, uh, you know, kind of Rhode Island old staples uh, and, and folk wisdom being used to, to test these things. Um, but one, just one other thing I thought when, when Ian was talking about, it would be interesting if we'd, we'll never find out, but you know, how Fung would have done if he ran for governor a third time in, in these conditions. When you look what's happening between McKee and Kalis and look at the CD2 race, it is a more favorable climate for Republicans right now. This is the year to run as a Republican in Rhode Island. And you know maybe maybe he would have done it statewide and and uh, against McKee. We'll never we'll never know. But it's just an interesting uh, question. And I don't think it would have been as nasty a race either. They're I mean they're friendly. Look, politics gets ugly at times, but they're both net mayors. I mean he's they're on first name basis, so you never know. Um, what does he have to do then, the governor, then to close it out, the, the, uh, in your mind, over the next couple of days? Yeah, well, as we said earlier, with the absence of a competitive mayoral race in Providence, you know, you've got to get the vote out in Providence. McKee's base is clearly the Blackstone Valley. That was a key support, key source of support for him in the primary, where he had a relatively narrow victory over Helena Folks. You know, uh, if Folks is having buyer's remorse, if she had run a scintilla of the kind of advertising that's been done by Ash. Kalis, the outcome of that race might have been different. But yeah, he's got to get his voters out. And I think his, he's run a pretty robust advertising campaign to get his message home on issues like abortion and raising questions about Kalis's uh, background and her ties to Rhode Island. I know they, uh, I know they do the mock debates and they have all the staffers in there. I would love to pull all of us in there and then just say, I know we can't do it because we've got to stay, but to say, you're not answering the question. Don't pivot, you know, and because it doesn't always happen that way in a debate. Um, a couple of the down ballot uh, issues, the treasurer, the lieutenant governor. Um, I don't know. I mean, Diosa has uh, James Diosa running against James Lathrop in the uh, in the treasurer's race. Lathrop has picked up a couple of interesting endor endorsements. I don't know whether that's going to be able to bridge the gap. I mean, Diosa smoked Stefan Pryor. I was surprised at how big a gap that was. So you wonder what Lathrop's chances are going to be in the general. I think he's still definitely the underdog, um, and, and it, it feels like from uh, what the sentiment is out there that for Republicans, the lieutenant governor's race might actually be a closer, a better shot. Uh, that's uh, Aaron Gukian versus Sabina Matos, um, and, that, and, and there's been some money from the outside coming in to help uh, the Republican candidate, um, so that which also gives you a, a sense that maybe they think they could take that one. So that's that might be a little more of the down ballot one to watch. E even though Treasure has been the the hotter uh, campaign uh, for the whole year, um, I th I think Diosa has is in a good position. It's definitely not 
uh, not a sure thing, but I think he would definitely be the favorite and treasurer. I was surprised how much Gukian had spent. He's he's really outspent and has a lot more money than Sabina Matos. I was surprised by that also. I thought, you know, a lot of times we see how some Republican candidates are challenged as far as fundraising in Rhode Island, and Gukian has had a lot of financial resources. I, I agree with Patrick. I think the lieutenant governor's race is really one to watch. Um, Gukian, uh, you know, might not have been as widely known as Matos, the former Providence City Council uh, president, but he, you know, I think this will be a competitive race. Lathrop is certainly a credible candidate, but I think he has not gotten his name and message out to the same degree as Gukian has. Steph, tell us about Providence. So Brett Smiley is going to be the mayor-elect, but a lot of changes with the city council. Yeah, exactly. So there's going to be a brand-new city council, um, you know, mostly decided in the primary, right? The city council is it's has been 15 Democrats for a long time at this point, but there are still a few general election races um, that are still yet to be decided, but because of term limits and, you know, city councilors who decided not to run for re-election, we're going to have about half the council brand, as brand new members, um, so it's really changing the makeup of the council, um, both in terms of gender diversity, um, racial diversity, there's going to be a new council president, Rachel Miller, who um, has amassed 11 out of the 15 Democratic nominees pledging to vote for her for council president. Of course, the official vote isn't until January, caveat, caveat. But um, I spoke to her on my show, Pulse of Providence, this week, and she's a progressive. She came up in, in progressive politics, but she's, she's also managed to work with, you know, moderates like Johnny Gliozzi. And so um, she says she's a pragmatic person. She got Jim Taylor to be on her team, who was a Gliozzi's majority leader. So it's going to be really interesting to see how... And Smiley's a little more to the Smiley's right. Smiley's more of... Moderate. I guess you could say a moderate, yeah. Uh, you know, they're all liberal Democrats, but he's more moderate than, than Miller, I would say. And it'll be interesting to see how the two of them work together, how the new council works with Smiley. If they disagree with them, will they find compromise? Or will they, you know, f be fighting with each other and, and issuing vetoes and, and, and all that? how much are they going to do before January, before the new, before the new regime takes hold? They're going to do everything now. Well, and that's the thing. This Providence Place Mall um, tax, tax treaty was yep. proposed at the last minute. Listen, this is a tax deal that doesn't expire until 2028. And the mall is proposing... Please give us 20 more years of multi-million dollar tax breaks. It sounds like the Twin River deal, doesn't it? I do not, I do not think that this is going to get through before the next council takes over because Mayor Lorza has already said it he, should be. He, he hasn't issued a veto threat per se, but he said he thinks it should be the next mayor. So I think they're going to have a public hearing next week. But I don't think it's the last hearing. They're losing a lot of institutional knowledge, too, though, off of that council. And that cuts both ways, but there are a lot of people who have been around and have seen things going on. So, I mean, fresh is nice, but also you got a lot of people who kind of know how government works. Yeah, and that's really the downside of term limits. I mean, we remember the late uh, Senate Finance Chairman Michael Lenahan, who was a great bastion of knowledge. He was a longtime legislator. People would say he was in it for the right reasons. If you had term limits, someone like him would have had a very short tenure. 
Steph does a great job outlining the dramatic changes on the Providence City Council that have been forced by term limits. But at the same time, we have to note how the challenges in Providence have remained unchanged for 30, 40 years. You know, the underperforming schools, the underfunded pension, lack of revenue, and, uh, you know, whether the, this new crop of elected officials will have more success in addressing that, we'll have to see. You know, something that's interesting, this is the first time term limits are taking effect in Providence. We would have had even more councilors you know, even more of the councilors turning over due to term limits. But because the terms are pretty long, they're four years, not everyone lasts the whole four years. Sabina Matos, who was term limited, left to be mm -hmm. lieutenant governor. Luisa Ponte, who was term limited, <laughs> got, <issues>. got <laughs> convicted of a felony. Um, and another councilor resigned. So there actually were more term limited councilors who got replaced in special elections, and those replacements are, of course, not term limited. So. Well, and the people against term limits will say, and that's the term limit. The voters had a say, or external factors. Or the police. Sure. Yeah, or the, the police have a say. Quickly, before we get to outrages, uh, the other thing on the ballot, when people go, I went to early vote yesterday, you flip it over, you see all the bond issues, and then you see the cannabis question. Yeah, exactly. 31 cities and towns, uh, voters there are being asked whether to approve or reject cannabis businesses. I think the pot shops, the retail stores are really what most people are thinking about here. Um, it's not the big cities, it's not Providence, Warwick, Cranston, they're going to allow the stores, but um, you may see that question on your ballot, and I have a breakdown on WPRI.com about what it all means. The other thing that struck me is I looked at my ballot and I saw all the bond issues. And I will admit straight up, I have voted for very few bond issues over the years, regardless of how great they are, because I think we're too much in debt. I wonder as people look at that with a billion dollars of ARPA money and a nine hundred thousand million dollar surplus, whether they look at that and say, why are we borrowing and paying interest on this, this and this, even though it may be a great thing to do? Some will, and I think this year and the climate may be a year where you see some of these voted down. However, usually they are voted, yeah. they, usually they pass. Overwhelmingly. And, yes, so I wouldn't expect many of the, them to have All to right, be let's do outrages and or kudos. Ian, let's begin with you. Well, it's hard to describe uh, Rodana as a bastion of normality, but we are insulated to some degree from this election denialism movement that is afoot in large parts of the country. There are hundreds of candidates, Republicans, who are election deniers. And like the old saying, you know, you're entitled to, to your own opinion, but not your own facts. And this is a really serious problem for the country that, you know, you have candidates running who say they will not agree to the outcome of an election unless they win. And you also follow the money trail on that, too, didn't you? That's right. I had a story this week looking at how election deniers have contributed more than $100,000 to Alan Fung. Of course, this is in the context of millions of dollars being spent for both uh, Fung and Magazine or by themselves and by independent expenditure groups. And, you know, uh, Fung, uh, you know, stays on message, says the issues about the economy. But he, he has been received campaign support from people like Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise, who voted against certifying the election of Biden in 2020. All right. Patrick, what do you have? Well, the country remains more polarized than ever on daylight savings time. And, it's, <laughs> and my outrage is that it's coming up on, on, on Sunday. And, you know, I have my personal opinion about whether standard time or daylight savings time is better or worse. But either way, 
if we could just come together and choose one or the other. I am fine. Bipartisan I, agreement. I am fine with yeah with either you know, for morning people uh, who like uh, standard time and and more night people who like daylight savings time. Just pick one. I and 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 the problem is changing the clocks twice. It's unnecessary. Let's just stick with one and and go with it. And, and as you know together. from having young kids, their body that's clock, the worst part. You don't get if that don't extra have, yeah, hour because had, they're up in the if morning. If you have a kid, they do not they do not know what the clock is, and they don't <laughs> they do not recognize. <laughs> I love Patrick as the ultimate reporter. I'm not going to say which one I like, uh, but pick one and stay in your lane. You get the last minute. Okay, I have a kudos, and it's to Ed Fitzpatrick for from the Boston Globe, just an unflappable interview that he did with Governor McKee that we mentioned earlier. He McKee was very upset about his questions, and in the podcast interview that he aired in full, Ed was just the consummate reporter. He had this great line where he said, you know, you can't control the questions, but you can control the answers, Governor. And he did a great that job. That was a good line. Yeah, it was. Yeah, well, we've kind of all been in that chair. But I think, and but the governor's been around long enough. He made it sound like, oh, we're going to play cards, but I'm not going to get any questions. Yeah, he said, I thought, this was, a po- he me, said right? I thought this was a positive piece. And Ed said, well, this wasn't, isn't a positive piece or a negative piece. And that's, as journalists, we don't, Go to politicians and say it's like Patrick. And tell them what the. <laughs> I'm not going to yeah. tell you whether it's positive or negative. Just answer the question. Right. We ask questions, right. they answer them. All right. Good. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, it is a quick 30 minutes. Ian and Steph and Patrick, raise your hand if you're glad that the election's going to be over on <laughs> Tuesday. Oh, for sure. For Everybody, sure. Uh, folks, come back next week. We will have a full analysis. All the results will be in. Hopefully, all the results will be in. Uh, locally and nationally. Uh, Come back, we'll have a full analysis. If you can't join us Friday at 7 or Sunday at noon, check us out on social media and ripbs.org slash lively. Come back next week as the Lively Experiment continues. experiment is generously underwritten by hi i'm john hazen white jr for over 30 years a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face rhode islanders i'm a proud supporter of this great program and rhode island pbs